0: Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com and podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We're really pleased to welcome today to the show, David Shore. David is a data scientist who consults with progressive groups around the country and is one of the most trusted and widely respected voices on What's Actually Happening with the American electorate? He's the head of data science at Open Labs R&D, and previously was the director of political data science at Civis Analytics, overseeing a research and development program that interviewed millions of people for hundreds of individual campaigns and electoral organizations. The bottom line is, David has become the go-to person in democratic politics for understanding what's happened, and what's, happened what's happening, and what will happen uh, with the electorate. So, David, welcome to Beyond
1: Politics. Uh, Thank you. Honored to be here.
0: So let me throw you a real uh, softball, a pointed pointed softball question to open the show. So what's the lesson of 2020 in a nutshell? Why did Biden win?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. So I think, you know, if you, the important thing uh, to look at, you know, I think the most important thing for why Joe Biden won was, College-educated white voters. If you go through all of the different subgroups, you know, I'll just go through them one by one. Non-college white voters, who you know were instrumental to Trump winning in 2016, they swung about one percent toward Democrats from 2016 to 2020. After swinging 10 points against Democrats, you know, in 2016. So, you know, Biden clawed about one, about 10 percent of the of the losses back. If you look at non-white voters, you know, Black voters swung about 2% against Democrats and Hispanic voters swung about 9% against Democrats. But the real standout story, because, you know, non-college whites were roughly the same and non-white voters swung against Democrats, was college-educated white voters who swung seven points, five to seven points. People argue about the exact numbers toward Democrats. If you just look at any, any maps, if you look at places like Georgia, like Arizona, it's clear that the reason why Joe Biden survived you know, wasn't, you know, wasn't this organizing story, like a lot of activists like to claim, it was that there are a bunch of precincts in, you know, the Atlanta suburbs or in the Phoenix suburbs, where, you know, Mitt Romney got something like 70% of the vote, and Joe Biden himself got like 70% of the vote. And so I think that that's, you know, the real story of the victory. Like if you holistically look at 2020, Democrats lost ground with uh, with non-white voters, they, you know, treaded water, working-class white voters. And the only group that really changed that, you know, the only bright spot for Democrats was this college-educated white swing. But, you know, the important thing to keep in mind, because we shouldn't, you know, be too cheery about this, it's actually a very dark thing, is that Joe Biden got 52.3% of the two-party vote. And had he gotten 52%, (laughs) we would have lost. There were four states, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which all basically all were clustered pretty tightly together. Joe Biden won all of them by about 0.3%. And had he done 0.3% worse, Joe Biden would have lost. (laughs) Donald Trump would be president. And we would probably have a Republican Senate if you just kind of look at how, how just because Ossoff wouldn't have made the runoff and we likely would have lost the Michigan Senate race. So I think, you know, there's a question of why is that happening? And I don't want to jump the gun too much. But this this just ties in with this college-educated voter thing is that, you know, this electoral college bias of 2%, that Joe Biden had a 2% handicap when he was running in 2020, it's actually larger than what Hillary Clinton faced. Hillary Clinton got 51.1% of the two-party vote. And had she gotten 51.6% or 51.5%, she would have won. And so why did it get bigger? The answer is because of college-educated white voters. They live in the wrong places. They're concentrated in cities and concentrated on the coast. And, you know, that means that their votes are worth less than everyone else. And so even though it was a bright spot in terms of, you know, people switching their votes, it's a very risky strategy. And it kind of increases the, the handicap, uh, you know, for elections we do going forward.
2: Wow, that is in a nutshell, I think you really just captured such a, a, a complex and interesting story of what was going on. I want to focus on, on just a wrinkle in there, because obviously one of the outcomes here was Joe Biden wins the presidency. Democrats win the U.S. Senate by, obviously mathematically, the thinnest of thin margins, and they lose ground in the House but manage to hold on to it. But down ballot even further, Democrats did not do well. And we're broadcast out of New Hampshire. For our listeners around the country, you may not know, the biggest bloodbath in the country was in the New Hampshire legislature, which was an absolute, well, like I said, a bloodbath. So, David, what am I, am I hearing you right? That it would be sort of easy to look at the top line of 2020 and say, what's the nutshell? Democrats won. But underneath that, there's there's really not as much of a good news story, and because of some of that, as you put it, inefficient sorting of where Democrats' votes are coming from, is that the explanation for why down-ballot Democrats didn't do that well, or in some cases got totally wiped out?
1: I think it's definitely... Part part of the explanation. If you look at places like Wisconsin or Michigan or North Carolina or I, I think there is there is a story that there's a lot of gerrymandering in a lot of these places. New Hampshire is not nearly as bad, but I'm sure that in New Hampshire the median seat is still to the right uh, to the right of the state overall. And so I think that there are structural issues, and you know those structural issues partly come from gerrymandering and you know partly come from the fact that. Democrats increasingly are concentrated in districts that are... But I think that there's another problem, you know, on top of that, which is that, you know, Joe Biden got about 52.3% of the two-party vote. But if you look at the House popular vote, you know, Democrats got something like 51, 51 51.5% of the vote. Democrats in Congress, despite the fact that they enjoy incumbency advantage in most swing districts, or enjoyed incumbency advantage in most swing districts, largely speaking, underperformed Joe Biden. And I think that that's a story that you see ring true basically across the state. Like, I, I haven't looked at New Hampshire specifically, but I've really seen across a bunch of different states, Democrats in the state legislature really underperformed to the top of the ticket. And, you know, I think there's a question about why, and I think the answer is very simple. And the, the 2020 election was a situation where Democrats picked Literally the most popular person person in our party whose last name is not Obama. And Republicans decided to run literally the most unpopular person to run to run for president in decades. And when we did that and we put those two people against each other, we were barely able to scrape it, scrape out a 0.3% majority. And that's very concerning to me. I think it's I think it's very scary because you know there's gonna be Uh, there's going to be someone after Trump who's probably going to be more popular. It's true. Maybe he won't be able to, you know, galvanize working class voters as much, but Trump really was unusually unpopular. But it's not clear to me who the next Biden is going to be. And so I think that this election result, it doesn't just, you know, the warning sign isn't just, oh, look, we have all these structural biases. So that's a very important message. It's also that we actually aren't winning the war of ideas as much as we think. There's, even though in terms of the popular vote, a lot of people, you know, Trump was very unpopular. The Republican Party writ large is more popular relative to the Democratic Party than people think. And I, that's honestly the big story for why this, why, why, there was so much down-ballot carnage is people aren't, you know, the Democratic Party is, is brand. It's, its brand and agenda has shifted a lot in the last four to five years. And it's gone in a direction that a lot of voters necessarily aren't comfortable with or... You know, it says it's it's, and I think people can overestimate how much support there is for the Democratic Party by just looking at the president. David,
0: there's an awful lot already to unpack in what you've said. You know, a little bit of dark humor is, well, the good news for Democrats is there's there's a reason why we're whining and why we're complaining and why we're so scared. At least at least there's a basis for the fear that Democrats have about about the results and about about where we're, we're going. You know, it, it's often the case that um, that Matt and I joke on this show about Democrats. And oh, you know, we're we're not happy unless we're sad and complaining and whining. But <laughs> at, le- at least now there's a reasonable basis for it. I and mean, look, the, the Democratic Party is uh, stitched together, or always tries to stitch together a coalition, uh, a broad coalition among um, many different interest groups, many different ethnic groups. One of the critical growing ethnic groups that Democrats have counted on in the past is Hispanic voters. And as you've pointed out, Democrats lost ground significantly among Hispanic voters. Can you tell us why? What are Democrats missing? And, and, and that'll, of course, give, perhaps give us some information about what Democrats can do to try to woo back Hispanic voters
1: sure you know like, like before I'll start with some numbers you know as I said before there was a nine percent swing among the Hispanic vote from 2016 to uh, 2020 which which is really a lot. <laughs> I don't think it's something that many people expected mean it is something that's pretty large in magnitude. it wasn't a hundred percent even through the country. In Florida, it was 14% of voters. There's actually a neighborhood very close to where I went to college, Doral, which is a predominantly Venezuelan and uh, Colombian neighborhood that swung 40 points, uh, 30 to 40 uh, points toward, toward Trump. And then in South Texas, famously in the Rio Grande Valley, there were really a host uh, of counties that had voted Democratic and not just voted Democratic, but Seventy-five percent, eighty percent plus, Democratic for over a hundred years. That either flipped to Trump or went very close to Trump. But overall, you know, outside of those places, it was you know roughly in a six to eight percent range. And there's a point there that's important. You know, a lot of people when they saw this swing, they wanted to tell these stories. Oh, this is about Cubans. Oh, this is about I don't know, people in the RGV being border, you know, working in border security. But really, every place in the country with a substantial Hispanic population. Saw a substantial decline. And a lot of people will claim, you know, this is because there wasn't canvassing. But if you look at the Bronx, if you the Hispanic parts of New England, like you know, Lawrence, Massachusetts, you see these very large swings. And these are places that have never seen canvassing. So I think, you know, there's this question of, okay, there's this big swing. Why is this actually happening? And I think the first descriptive way to talk about it, and this doesn't explain anything, but it's another descriptive statistic. Is that basically all of the decline among Hispanic voters happened along ideological lines? So, you know, what I mean by that is if you ask people, do you identify as liberal, moderate, or conservative? Something that I think is very fascinating about American politics is that the answers don't vary by race. Roughly the same percentage of Black, white, and Hispanic people identify as liberal, moderate, or conservative. And that's really interesting because obviously partisanship (laughs) varies a lot by race. Traditionally, Democrats get about 40% of white people, about 70% of Hispanic people, and about, you know, 90-something percent of African Americans. But when it comes to ideology, it's really not polarized at all. And so just mathematically, what that means, the only way the numbers work out is that that, meant that, that means that historically, Democrats have won non-white conservatives by very large margins. And, you know, what changed about 2020 is in 2016, Hispanic conservatives Voted for Clinton by something like 20 points, and in 20, in 2020, they voted for Trump by something like 30 points. And that basically is the story that there's been this ideological polarization, like among white people. uh, White people have been polarized by ideology for a very long time, honestly, probably since the caucus, where white people, you know, white conservatives, about 80% of white conservatives vote for Republicans and about 90% of white liberals vote for Democrats. But among non-white voters it hasn't been uh, you know it hasn't been like that and the story here is that in 2020 non-white conservatives are starting to vote more like white conservatives and you know the last thing i'll say is like okay well there's ideological polarization why is that happening that doesn't tell me anything why are these why why why, why are non-white conservatives starting to vote like white conservatives and, you know, we did research. We did a post- large post-election survey, my firm, where we talked to Hispanics and we pulled them across a battery of issues. And, you know, we saw that the, you know, biggest single predictor of switching from Clinton to Trump was attitudes toward policing, attitudes toward crime, you know, and, you know attitudes toward defunding the police. And, you know, I don't want to single that out. I, I think it because I think it's a more complex story than that. You know, this, but I think it paints a picture that basically over the past four or five years. As the Democratic Party has absorbed all of these college-educated white voters, college-educated white voters have a lot of influence <laughs> disproportionate to their numbers. They donate more, they run for office more, they're more likely to you know, be journalists and whatever. And so they've been able to shift the brand of the Democratic Party in, into their image. And you know, the big issue is that working class, Non-white voters and working-class white voters have more in common with each other than they do college-educated white voters. And so, as you know, I, I, as college-educated white voters have, you know, kind of taken control of the party, there's been a lot of different flashpoints, and I think defund the police is one of them. But this has been going on for a long time, and I've been talking for a while. So the last thing I'll say is that in 20, that this Hispanic shift that happened didn't start this year, I think one of the most unremarked things about 2018, and I think this is a fact that surprises people, is that in 2018, white voters trended toward Democrats in almost every race in the country, but non-white voters trended against Democrats. And this was something that was really significant. You know, Stacey Abrams did about, I think, one or two percent worse uh, among Black voters than Hillary Clinton did. And had she done as well as Hillary Clinton with Black voters, she would be the governor. Same story in Florida in the Florida Senate race in 2018 and really across the country. And so we've seen this, you know, we've seen this trend before. This is a continuation of what's been happening in the five years. So I don't want to single out defund the police, but I think it is emblematic of a, situa- of a situation where college-educated white people are increasingly able to set the agenda and set the tone in the media, and that's causing a reaction among these kind of working-class, more conservative white and non-white voters.
0: Can I just follow up? Oh, go from- ahead, Paul. And I'm
1: going war- to warn you for radio purposes that
2: at some point in the next two and a half minutes, I'm going to rudely cut in and take a radio break. But you go ahead.
0: So what I'm what, what I'm hearing is that Democrats have a—I mean, I, I guess I'd say a real messaging problem. Assuming that our values are attractive, in that we support tolerance and diversity, that even in the face of somebody like Donald Trump who has said terrible things about Hispanics and who has been uh, cruel and heartless, conservative Hispanics simply are, are are not responsive to what to the white privilege problem that Democrats have. And so we're perceived as the party, of elite white privilege and 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 we can't message our way out of that box. Uh, is that the problem? Is it the ideas? Is it values? What how where do you see the where do you see the the answer, so to speak?
1: You know, I think a lot of people say about the Democratic Party, especially you know in our in our space, that, you know, the problem with Democrats is that we're wonks, that we're eggheads, we talk too much about issues, and that we need to take on the conservatives and just communicate and campaign on our values, stand up for what we believe in. And, you know, the problem with that is that swing voters don't share our values. If they did, they would be liberals and we wouldn't have to say anything. The reason, you know, our values are weird and strange and alien to them. And this has been true for a long time. The only reason people have ever, you know, swing voters have ever voted for us is because of the tangible things either fear of what the Republicans are gonna do, you know, or tangible things that you know, we could offer them. Like, and I think people don't realize up until 2016, the vast majority of people who, who voted for Democrats were working class white people. The statistic I wanted to share is just, if you look in 2012 at white voters without a college degree who make less than $25,000 a year, Barack Obama won this group by about two or three points. And Donald Trump won this group By 25 points. And that's a massive swing. I think that Democrats have a lot of, have built up a lot of denial about what's happened over the last five years. They, they're like, oh, you know, all of these people, all of these working class white voters are just like secretly car dealership owners, or, you know, they're the petite bourgeoisie or whatever. But actually, the reality is that Donald Trump won white people on food stamps. He won white people without a college degree. Like every, every measure of socio- socioeconomic class you want to look at, being in building trades union or whatever, all of these groups have swung incredibly against Democrats. And, you know, we have to, something I like to say is that 2012 wasn't that long ago. We have the tapes, you know, we, we, we have the technology to go, to go back. Like why were these voters voting for us? And I think there's, you know, two components. The first is we really did emphasize you know, policy agenda that was relevant to them. You know, One of my favorite graphs about the 2016 election is if you look at swing, if you look at support in 2012 and 2016 by policy issue, for voters who agreed with us on health care and disagreed with us on immigration, about 12% of the electorate, they disproportionately live in you know, very electorally important places like the Midwest or the Plain State. Barack Obama got about 60% of those voters. And Hillary Clinton got 40. And that, that, I think, is actually the story of the election. I think people want to downplay the importance of issues. But I think the, the way that political scientists, uh, or a, lot of, a lot of new political science thinks about this, is that, you know, swing voters are, are kind, of, kind of weird, for lack of a better term. You know, they don't have ideologically coherent views, because, I, tautologically, if they did, they'd be Democrats or Republicans. You know, a lot of people think that moderate voters are like David Brooks, you know, just up down the middle on everything. But actually, you know, moderate voters have a mix of extreme right and left wing views, and that means whenever you open your mouth, it is a complex optimization problem where you piss off some voters, you mm-hmm. bring in other voters, and that and but that's actually really exciting because we have a lot of control over what we decide to say and what we don't. And I think, you know, that the story here is that if we talk more about things that people care about and also use language that people can understand, and I'll talk about that in a second, then you know, the issue landscape will switch and people will vote for you more. I, I mean, it's like a funny piece of political advice and I feel, I feel bad because you know, there's, a, there's a former congressman on the line, but politics is about running on popular things that people care about using language you can understand. And the last thing I'll say, uh, about using language people can understand is I really think that there has been a big change in how Democrats talk. You know, Something I personally like to do for fun is just like to go back and watch old C-SPAN videos. E- and even if you go back to the 2012 debates, the way that Democrats just literally spoke is very different than if you look at 20, 2016 or 2020 And obviously, if you go back to the 2000s, you know, it becomes even more foreign. Like Democrats used to use smaller words they used to be much more focused on bread and butter pocketbook issues. And I think that there's a direct incentive reason for that. You know, when I talk about what politicians I like, you know, which ones I'm most impressed by and which ones I'm not in the Democratic Party, it's not an ideological story of moderate versus liberal. It's a story basically of, how long they've been in politics. You know, I think Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders are both excellent in politics, and so is Joe Biden. And I think the reason why they are is that they existed in, in the 1980s. And in the 1980s, there were a lot more swing voters. When Joe Biden ran for a Senate in 1984, Ronald Reagan got 60% in this state, and Joe Biden got 60% of the state. That means nearly half the state voted for both Ronald Reagan and Joe Biden. There just used to be a lot more swing voters. It used to be that you could buy uh, a campaign ad in one media market, not the other, and the ad would have like a 10% effect. And now that effect would be more like half a percent. And so it used to be much easier to learn things. And it used to be that you know, the way that you got through in politics was navigating a democratic coalition that was comprised of working class black and Hispanic and white voters. And so I think that that helped you build a lot of political skills. But in the past 10 years, you know, with the rise of online donations and national media, like the way that you get ahead as a democratic politician is to excite democratic donors who are wildly disproportionately educated, something like 40% of them have advanced degrees, you know, compared to a baseline rate of like three or 4%. And by getting you know, activists and highly educated cosmopolitan journalists to be excited about you. And I think that that's really warped the language of how we talk about things and what issues we care about and what our priorities are. And I think that working class voters are smart enough to realize that's happening. And I think it's a big reason why we've had trouble making inroads with them. Wow,
2: there is, I mean, literally, I, I, I what I'd like to do is cloister you in a room to follow up with questions about everything you just said for like 12 hours. Unfortunately, I don't have that. And I've got I've to just pick one of my many questions. Let's, let's kind of go with, with where you landed there because it really hits on sort of a personal bugaboo of mine which is that what I've seen in my time in politics as a congressional staffer, as a campaign staffer is exactly the dynamic that you just described. Because we get feedback out of our campaigns from fundraising as as Democrats, what we tend to do is we tend to say, hey, this is what works and we've told ourselves so so we message we talk about the things and we talk about it in ways that appeal to these highly progressive way overeducated voters and members of the press and we sort of assume, hey, what resonates there is what works. And look, if it's getting us press, that's good. And if it's getting us money for our campaigns, money for campaigns is important, that's good. And it seems like what we're sort of missing here is that is way, way off kilter from what the bulk of the electorate really wants. Is is that what is going on let me let me let me put this let me put a more pointed question to that because that was mostly reading back i think what, what you were just saying for a long time in political science there has been a lot of scholarship and a, a lot of numbers to it showing that over the last quarter century republicans have been polarizing it's republicans who as a group have been becoming much more conservative and democrats haven't shifted that much. It's been this buzzword of asymmetric polarization. It's it's the Republicans who have kind of gone off the deep end, the conservative deep end. But recently, there's been some Twitter buzz around new research showing that actually it's liberals who are the ones who have moved, moved most to the extremes. And it sounds like that kind of lines up with the story you're telling here, which is, you know, maybe in their heart of hearts, Democrats aren't Shifting that much, but the way that Democrats talk about politics, the things that they put in their fundraising appeals, the people that they're that they're talking to, that has shifted in a meaningful way. And it's really hurting the Democratic Party. Is is that right?
1: I agree about that. And you know, I just want to give a, a shout-out for mentioning asymmetric polarization on a on a on a radio show. But I agree with all of that percent. De- wait a second. Wait a second.
0: Wait, David you have to explain to people what is asymmetric polarization for our audience 100%.
1: So asymmetric polarization as you know you all just talked about is is this idea that was this was popular with political scientists that if you analyze the voting records of democratic and republican congressmen you know republicans have gotten more and more conservative like a rocket ship every single year since 1976, you know, arguably it's, you know, because of the networks that were formed and Ronald Reagan's run against the challenge against Ford under discussed period of history, wish I was there, but, but you know, that, that's the story that Republicans have just gotten more and more conservative. Like, you know, if Newt Gingrich was around today, he would be considered a moderate, even though, you know, he was so extreme at the time. And, you know, while at the same time, the claim is that Democrats have not really, you know, gotten a little bit more liberal, but you know, they haven't really, especially once you account for like the Dixiecraft and everything you know, Democrats have stayed the same, Republicans have gotten much more conservative. And, you know, in, you know, for political science circles, this was like kind of the accepted wisdom for a long time. But I think there's a really interesting wrinkle on this fact is that, you know, everything I just said is about voting records of members of Congress that Republicans have gotten more extreme in their voting, but that doesn't necessarily represent issues. If you look at what separates the most right-wing people in the Republican caucus from like the more moderate people in the Republican caucus, it's procedural <laughs> extremism. As a, it's not like one person is like, I want the income tax to be 10%. The other person's like, I want it to be 15, 15%. There's actually not that much open policy agreement. Well, you know, there is on the, uh, and I think you can contrast that to the democratic side. Like when you look at actual survey data, and this is you know, what the question was suggesting, what's really interesting is that across a whole host of different issues, Republicans are actually rough, have roughly the same views, maybe even a little bit more liberal views than they did 20 to 30 years ago, you know, particularly on things like gay marriage, but Democrats are now substantially more liberal. And, you know, one of the examples I like to give here is if you ask people, you know, do you think that immigrants, you know, make, you know, make the country better, or do you think, you know, or not, what I find really interesting is that if you go back to 2006. Which it wasn't that long ago. There was actually no gap in part in, in in immigration attitudes by party. Democrats and Republicans were roughly roughly equal to each other, and that's very hard to imagine. You know, it's like a fun thing I like to say is, you know, whenever I'm talking to older Democrats, it's just like I, I know you were. You were probably, you probably had anti-immigrant attitudes 20 years ago. You know, polarization's a a wild thing. And, but since then, they've kind of rocketed up in like a linear fashion. And you can see this across a whole host of issues, you know, racial resentment, you know, immigration attitudes, you know, honestly, things like taxes, you know, the democratic part, like democratic voters are much more, much more left-wing across basically every issue, you know, than they were in the mid-2000s. And I think that this highlights a really interesting dichotomy between what each party's base is trying to do. I'm gonna get a little political science-y, so forgive me, but in, policy, in, in political science, we talk a lot about follow the leader effects. It's this idea that when Barack Obama says, I support gay marriage, suddenly a bunch of Democrats who were holding out were like, oh, well, I, I like Barack Obama. I'm gonna change my mind and support gay marriage. Or more famously, if Donald Trump is like, hey, you should inject the bleach into your body. Suddenly, 30, 40% of Republicans say that bleach is good. This is like something that people who watch polls have had an eye for. And so I think a lot of liberals look at what the Republican Party has been doing in terms of, you know, suddenly 40% of Republicans are in favor of the Capitol Hill, of the one-six interaction. And they say, look, the Republican Party is getting more extreme. And I think that that's true. But it highlights that the two parties are getting extreme in different ways. At the same time that the Republican Party has been, you know, denying that Trump won the election and, you know, making all of these authoritarian noises, they appointed Eleni, you know, uh, Stefanik to to replace Liz Cheney. And she is actually literally the most moderate in terms of voting records and policy uh, Republican in the House caucus, it's probably in the top three or four most moderate Congress people. And I think that this is a really important part of this story. When you talk about moderate versus conservative, a lot of people don't realize Donald Trump, when he ran in 2016, was actually rated as the most moderate person to run for president in decades. And the reason for that, you know, a lot of educated people really hate Donald Trump, obviously, you know, maybe for good reasons. But Donald Trump's real electoral strategy, and it's important to remember his base in the Democratic primary, was all, sorry, in the Republican primary, it was actually former Democrats and moderates. He abandoned the Republican, unpopular Republican position on entitlement. But he said, I don't want to cut Social Security. I don't want to cut Medicare. And, you know, his approval rating during his term was very stable. But the only time it fell was when he, you know, tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So I think it's an interesting thing that the way that we think, the way people like us think about moderation and the way that swing voters think about moderation is very interesting, you know, and very different, like, you know, to swing voters, Donald Trump is a moderate, and to us, he's an extremist. And I think that gets to the, you know, this dichotomy of, of why some people say the Democratic Party is moving to the left, and some people say the Republican Party is moving to the right. They are, but in different ways. Well,
2: I think it points out that the Democratic Party's problem is actually a deeper problem politically than the Republican Party's problem. You know, we're, we're sitting on the line here, and our listeners are listening to the quintessential example of exactly what you were talking about. Paul Hodes represented the second congressional district of New Hampshire, a famously swingy district in a famously swingy state. That district was represented by Charlie Bass, a famously moderate, like the most moderate Republican in Congress for a long time. And I actually took a look at the data set that political scientists use to do the kinds of measurements you were just describing. And interestingly, what you see with Charlie Bass, who is as affable and moderate a guy as you could hope to meet is that he actually did in his voting record swing toward the right consistently across his term, even though he occupied this swing district where you would think he would have to be super moderate. Paul Hodes had a super moderate voting record in Congress. So what you what you see in the data is exactly what you're just describing which is that at the leadership level, Republicans truly were polarizing. They were moving much more toward the right among elected officials, Democrats weren't so much. But now what you're describing is that the the actual voters that make up the base of each party, it's a different effect. For Republicans, the, the, the voters haven't moved that much, but for Democrats, the voters have, they've gotten much more progressive. It strikes me that that sets up a much more difficult problem because if everything you've described in the first part of this show about Democrats really not getting it and not understanding that the values that they're espousing, the messages that they're pushing are really out of touch with the the, the middle bulk of voters. It seems like, hey, look, if it's your leadership, that's that's kind of going to extremes that's an easy fix there's not that many leaders you know you can you can vote that crop of leaders out you can bring a new crop of leaders in if it's your voters that are beginning to move to extremes that's a hard problem to to deal with you you really have to it's like how do you how do you how do you advise the democratic party writ large to change course And this is really a question to you. How do you advise the Democratic Party to change course when it's the voters themselves who seem to be kind of veering off a cliff?
1: That's a a great question. I, I think that the important thing to realize is, you know, I talked a little bit about these follow the leader effects before that. You know, Democratic Party elites and activists and Republican Party elites and activists both project information to their base. But the Republican elites are telling their base Hillary Clinton is the devil or, you know, we need or Donald Trump won the election. But they're not actually, you know, you could imagine a Republican elite that was like, let's get everyone to support, you know, legalizing machine guns or whatever. But that's not how they're using their media attention and it's not how they're using their political capital. They're largely making people more extreme procedurally. On the Democratic side, there are, there are all these that are on the Democratic side, there are all these forces, you know, activist groups, foundation groups, and politicians themselves who are trying to raise money, who are trying to move their base, basically to the left. They're using their follow the leader effects to move folks in that direction. And I think, you know, Democrats writ large want to win elections, and they look to their leadership to give them guidance. And I think that You know, unfortunately, every single campaign that's running isn't thinking about this, like, global strategy. They're trying to raise as much money, every you know, as much money as they can. They're trying to get their own campaigns ahead. And this is a coordination problem. I guess I I think that fundamentally, though, this requires the Democratic elite. Like, I I don't think it's this fundamental problem. The The reality of the Democratic base, and this is evidenced by the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is president is the Democratic base in terms of voters is substantially more moderate than people realize. Only 50% of Democratic primary voters identify as liberal at all. And, you know, the reality is that a very substantial fraction of our base is still working class white voters and still, you know, working class people of color. And I think the problem is, that these working class white voters and these working class people of color don't have the political power. You know, they don't have the connection. They're not socially proximate to journalists. They don't donate money. They're much less likely to actually work in politics. One really quick statistic I'll give is that, you know, 18 to 34 year old white people without a college degree are only about 5% of the electorate, but they're probably literally a majority of people who work in democratic politics. And so I think the message is that there's this small class of people, which to be clear, I'm, I'm part of, I'm a, you know, very progressive, you know, cosmopolitan, young white educated person, you know, we have this disproportionate power. And I think we're in denial about this where we disproportionately staff the media, we disproportionately staff campaigns. And, you know, we have a big play, a big say in determining what gets out, you know, what messages, you know, do campaigns use, what issues get talked about. And I think that we have to be cognizant that that power comes at the expense of people who have less power than us, uh, moderate working class black voters, moderate working class white voters. And I think that you know, for both from a small D democratic perspective and for the good of the party so that we don't lose election, we really should step back and take less space and try to try to reflect the views of the coalition because if we don't, these people are gonna leave. The, the coalition. Like if we can't offer, if we don't try to offer, you know, working class people something, you know, then the other side is, is going to do it instead. And, you know, that's what Donald Trump dad did. And that's what the Republicans did.
0: So let me just turn to a particular another another ethnic group question you wrote a much read and commented on new york magazine interview there was an article an interview about the difference about how black voters and white progressives view issues about race and and since then the focus of the political world has turned to critical race theory huge impact by the way in new hampshire where there's now an education gag rule in effect passed by the Republican legislature. Democrats are doing what can be done, they think, to move away from being associated with defund the police, the worst message of all time, probably gets a, a an Oscar for worst message of all time. So what is uh, the difference that you were pointing to and how dangerous are these issues for Democrats, especially with black voters? And I got
2: to point out that this has got to be a lightning round question because we've got about 30 seconds.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I'm less worried about critical race theory. You know, I, I think that right-wing politics 101 is, you know, you complain about, you demagogue on immigration, you demagogue on crime, you talk about tax increases. And, you know, whenever I see Republicans go off that, I'll go off that script and talk about cancel culture, talk about critical race theory. I, I smile. I, I think that these aren't issues that regular people care about very much.
2: That's actually very comforting because I have to say, I agree with Paul's earlier point that as Democrats, you know, we stress about everything. And I don't know, maybe on on the basis of of what you just said there, I'm going to de-stress just a little bit about Fox News bloviation about critical race.
1: Unless they trick us into talking about critical race theory instead of health care. This is the last thing I'll say, is Republicans are trying are going to try to bait us over the next year. And if, and we shouldn't take the bait. We should talk about the good issues that people care about, as opposed to because we shouldn't talk about critical race theory either.
2: Well, that's as sage advice as one could wish for. I'm going to go ahead and sign off here for David Shore. Fascinating insights. Former Congressman Paul Hodes. I'm Matt Robeson on WKXL and Beyond Politics. We'll see you next time.